content warning for drugs, police brutality, suicide, and sexual content. Hello and welcome back to the Billy Shears Club. We've been talking about a whole lot of proto-punk, and now, Ricky, get us right back into it with some of that man in black. Alright, so Johnny Cash needs no introduction, but I will introduce him. Uh, so he was an American country uh, singer-songwriter from born in 1932, so he's definitely uh, going to be a well, actually, I don't know. Huh. I was gonna make he he might be a bit older than I mean, yeah. He's probably a bit older than most of the other people we're covering. Um, <laughs> um yeah, this one this this song was kinda out of left field for me. I wasn't uh wasn't quite expecting Johnny Cash to show up, but <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably the biggest, like, I don't know, the biggest thing I've always associated with him is his prison shows and his, um, uh, kind of the darkness that's kind of inherent in some of his music due to his struggles with, uh, uh, drugs and alcohol and his relationship trouble. Um, so that's kind of, for me, that always forms the background of uh, the music that I'm listening to by him. Um, and so, and like, because of that, he was a, he became, you know, a big influence on outlaw country. And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's like a line of influence there to like gothic music and um, things like that but I'm not exact, I'm not too sure. And then, but yeah, I mean, another, I mean, another big thing is it, a lot of his music is pretty minimal um, with just like a minimal repetitive drum beat that's just like alternating between like I don't know, hi hat and and uh, snare just over and over, and then just some simple like um, chords on the guitar and just a like a single line, like a I don't know what it's called, four over four bass line or whatever. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe in the in that kind of minimalism which really focuses on his voice or it like brings, uh, draws the focus to his voice. Um, but yeah. I guess I didn't, I didn't really look into the, the background of the San Quentin album. Um, but I probably should have done that. That's all <laughs> More right. More familiar with the Folsom Prison album, so. Yeah, San Quentin was my pick. Um, because, first of all, because it was one of the Johnny Cash's I knew better. The reason I wanted to put Cash in this list is he actually counts as part of the rockabilly genre, which was a pretty big influence on punk. Yeah. 
the reason I picked San Quentin specifically is because, A, I think the live recording emphasizes something that we kind of touched on earlier in the last half of this episode of Punk, which is that there's a lot of... A lot of the major elements in play from song to song to song seem to be related to audience connection and participation. There's a communality here that I think you get really strongly with this album because you can hear the prisoners reacting to it. And also, I, I don't think the lyrics, I don't think you get more explicitly screw the man than writing a song calling out the prison system. Yeah, yeah. And saying, everything we do to imprison these people is utterly useless. It's not going to do anybody any good. It's inhumane. And performing that in a prison. Yeah. Old yeah. school country and punk have a lot in common, I think. Yeah, definitely. I actually saw a TikTok sort of related the other day where it's like, uh, like country and grunge are actually basically the same. It just depends who on you're trying to kill. But... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Personally, yeah. I think some punk band can cover 16 times. Oh, that would be great. Well, I don't know. But yeah, this is definitely, yeah, that... I think a lot of those elements still, like, you know, like you mentioned, his very basic boom-chicka-boom-chicka-boom-chicka-boom rhythm that, he's, that he writes very well, because, like, sometimes the applause from the prisoners gets so loud that he has to stop singing, and the band just keeps going boom-chicka-boom, so he's able to just <laughs> jump back on whenever. But there is that one... There is that one main riff, and like you say, like making an entire song about basically prison doesn't work, especially because like Johnny Cash himself would serve time at some points, and his entire persona in a lot of ways is you know very punk rock. Like he dressed himself as the Man in Black, according to him, because there was just so much injustice in the world, and he just wanted to take a stand and not be like you know the rhinestone cowboy and be like, oh, everything's sunshine and roses, like. No, I'm Johnny Cash, and things are terrible, and I'm gonna stand against them. Which is very punk rock. I'm gonna take Nine Inch Nails' song and do it better. All your alternative rock are belong to me. Speaking of uh, incarcerated singers, Merle Haggard was reportedly in the front row for the concert at San Quentin, because that's where he was imprisoned uh. at the time. <laughs> I wish I I need to go back to listen to that album to see if he's like, oh, there's my good buddy Merle. <laughs> they have folks at home, Merle. Yeah. This is also the was it this one or Folsom Prison where there's the picture of Johnny Cash? Um, I think that was at the San Quentin performance, but it could be Folsom Prison. Let me check. Picture of him what? Given the finger. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. It was at San Quentin, yeah. The reason is there was a television crew uh, filming the concert, and um, he, according to Cash, he was frustrated at having the film crew block his view of the audience, and when the film crew ignored his request to clear the stage, he flipped them off. <laughs> that shocked my mom so much when she saw that, like, we were at a record store, and she saw a picture of that, and she was like, what did they do to Johnny Cash? And I was like, ma, he was on meth for much of the 60s. <laughs> I mean, if my understanding of uh, musical culture in America is any indication, 
depending on what genre you pick, the statement they were all on meth is fairly accurate for almost yeah. any decade from the 30s on. One, one last thing, little thing I would point out on this one is like, I just like the, the humor that he uses as he's introducing and exiting. Like, you know, he's like, I can't know what you're thinking. And maybe I don't know what you're thinking, and I don't care about it either. And it's like, oh, and at the end, after he's sung this entire song about how the prison system is terrible, he's like, if any of the guards are still my friend, can I get a glass of water, please? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Then the prisoners just boo the guy to pieces. <laughs> Look, it's very rare that you get a chance to protest that loudly and clearly without getting in trouble for it. <laughs> I would take it, too. Yeah. Shall we uh, keep moving down the timeline here? I'm ready if y'all are. All right. Take us to Japan, please. All right. Uh, so this next one is Ryu wo Tore Aizuno Keisatsu. Uh, I apologize in advance for any mispronunciations, and we'll try not to say the name too often, but having said that. Uh, so they're this radical left-wing band who took their name from a Frank Zappa song called Brain Police. And what few lyrics I was able to find online, translated or otherwise, they seem to mainly be like, like I said, just basically Marxists advocating for revolution to the point that the Jap that Japanese authorities actually like of the albums off of shelves because they were too revolutionary. Uh, this one is basically just a bongo, a uh, solo acoustic guitar, a bunch of people clapping and them shouting about how they want everyone to take up their firearms and overthrow the government and also give a quick shout out to a, I'm pretty sure, not 100% sure, but pretty sure a Japanese politician named Eto Shinpei, who a samurai uprising in the 1800s so like they are pretty pretty serious about the whole let's take down the man thing what'd y'all think i liked this one i was very frustrated by the fact that i couldn't find any translations <laughs> mm. I, ha I had to go on like genius where they had some in japanese and then i put it on google translate that makes sense Yeah, I can hear a lot of the, like, this is a lot more combative than some of the other songs. You can definitely tell that they're a protest band. Even not speaking Japanese, I can tell that this is a song meant to showcase the lyrics. Which isn't to say that the instrumentals are bad, just it's very clearly the song, the song itself taking precedent. Yeah, definitely. And the the music is, it is kind of unique in, in its approach. It's just like a, just like a strummed electric guitar and some like uh, bongo sounding drums or percussion, not, no, no like drum kit. Um, so yeah, it's pretty minimal. But, uh, yeah, there's an obvious, like, aggression to it and passion, so. It's very gritty and, you know, in your face. It's the 
most political and i think well i it doesn't it didn't get a lot of you know notoriety outside of japan due to you know just like the lack of publication and also just you know japan not being super into international markets for their music but you can see a lot of the same influences in the hardcore and political types of punk music later on Yeah, you don't think about Japan as being a place where punk music would be super popular, but it does make sense when you think about it. Now, what parts make sense for you? Well, I mean, by this point, we're about 30 years out from World War II, but being a country that is coming out of being a fascist dictatorship with imperialistic uh, aspirations and also getting bombed, twice I think would make you pretty leery of government as such and you're also in close proximity to Korea and Vietnam so even if your country is not the direct battleground for a lot of the communist capitalist proxy wars of the 60s and beyond you're right there it'd be like it'd be like watching England and Russia fight over Canada you know another thing that I generally know of I'm not an expert on Japanese history at the time but like I know they were like Japan was you know generally becoming you know building up the commercial side and the technological side so there was a lot of corporations building up at the time and they were trying to you know generally the policy for Japan post-war has been you know try to play up you know the cutesy stuff you know like we'll give you anime and car hotels and all these Things, but also there's the undercurrent of it's actually got a kind of messed up police state. Like, you know, the police are noted as like having a very high effective rates, but there's been a lot of questions raised that police just falsify evidence if they can't find a person in order to maintain that description of efficiency. And also the work culture over time has just become ludicrously bad, you know, like just sleeping on subway trains as they go to work because they literally can't otherwise and like as the years have gone on insanely high burnout and suicide rates like there's some messed up things underneath the litter of the public kawaii yeah about you ricky um yeah i I don't really, I don't know much about, about the context, but yeah, it's a, it's a good song. I enjoyed it. I do wish there were like more lyrics about so that it would be easier to understand more songs. But you know, there's still rock out. Are y'all ready for the next one? Sure. Take it away, Maddie. All right, so our next song is, let me double check. Ah, we're on to Personality Crisis by the New York Dolls. The New York Dolls are actually a New York band. However, their name does not necessarily come from the city itself. The New York Dolls got their name from the fact that the drum store, where two of the founding members worked, was directly across from a doll repair store called the New York Doll Hospital. 
Um, they're considered, the New York Dolls are considered one of the first early punk bands in the proto-punk scene, along with like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. Um, compared to those two, they are a lot more of a cult group. Uh, another interesting little trivium is that they lost their original drummer pretty early on in their career as a band due to a tragic accident uh, due to an overdose. And so they auditioned a few replacements, including the original drummer for Kiss and the guy who would go on to drum for the Ramones. Ultimately, they ended up choosing Jerry Nolan, who was a personal friend of the band, as their replacement drummer, uh, the same guy who would later go on to drum for Cradle in the, in the late 60s. Um, their presence in music was pretty polarizing, from what I can tell. Uh, they were derided as mock rock by U.S. listeners and were named Best and Worst New Group of 1973. <laughs> They just wanted to cross-dress and play big riffs. What's yeah, wrong with a, They're very androgynous in their style and approach. Uh, personality Crisis specifically um, is very reminiscent of Rocky Horror to me, which I think means we can argue Rocky Horror is proto-punk. It's gay. Yeah. In the 70s. probably more accurate. I, also I mean, they're have both glam notes. rock. Yeah. I also have in my notes for this song, Harley Quinn Energy, Affectionate. I really appreciated their use of a sort of like keyboard riff you can kind of hear in the background. I always like it when bands feature keyboard because I took piano lessons as a kid. Nobody ever thinks of it as a hard rock instrument, but it could do damage if you try. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like the bombast of this one. Again, very reminiscent in tone and approach to, like, the time warp and a lot of the Rocky Horror songs, which I really like. It's, it's big, it's loud, it's there. It's not as, like, combative as some of the other louder songs that we've looked at. And it's not quite so much about, like, demolishing a train station as, a, as it is about demolishing societal perception of the self. But I like it. What do you think, Ricky? Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, kind of, I feel like after, like after Kick Out the Jams and Strict Nine, it's almost like a decrease in energy a little bit, but it's definitely important for like the, a bit more of the glam that, that shows up. Um, and there's a bit more like intent and uh, restraint to what's going to like how they kind of channel their energy. Uh, definitely, there's some to me, I don't know, maybe it's the vocals, but. Definitely reminded me of the Clash a bit, um, mm -hmm. or I mean, yeah, seems there's probably some influence there, but but yeah, it's a good song. I really like it. Yeah, the the glam rock, you know, it's it's underappreciated, I think, within punk history, because like usually you compare the two, and you know, like 
glam rock with all its focus on theatrics and makeup and, you know, being artificial doesn't seem very punk, but it's definitely very self-aware and still, you know, critical of the society that it's in and oftentimes nihilistic. And so I appreciate that. And this is, and the New York Dolls of the glam that I've listened to is one of the ones that has both the muscle of bands like, you know, Kiss and Slade and uh, Sweet while also still having the, you know, bitter edge of like David Bowie and some of the darker Olden John songs. Yes, he has darker songs. I, I think I'm going to kill myself is definitely a darker song than Rocket Man. No, that, that honestly is a little validating because I had a note that like the keyboard riff reminded me a little bit of Elton John, but I wasn't sure if that was just me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I like it for, you know, it brings a lot of high energy and they have like the very, you know, classic rock, big riff style that would be influential to punk rock. Also, this isn't super punk rock, but I do like at least the way that I heard the lyrics was it's one of the songs where they're like stripping, you know, verbally stripping down some random groupie who's, you know, just chasing trends and, you know, it's a berating a woman's song, but one where they're silly enough with their howling and screaming and losing their voices that it isn't just mean like like a Rolling Stone or a, well, also not just being kind of annoying like Vicious by Lou Reed. That's another quick take. I didn't see it as berating a groupie at all. I thought it was just more of like a generic sort of societal you. But maybe that's uh, just my uh, reader response situation. I mean, there's definitely mentions of... It is a little bit unsure, but it sounds like some... It, to me, it sounds like it's about someone who jumped a trend and now is... Uh, basically giving blowjobs and doing to be quite frank that's, that's what's said in the lyrics I don't know how I missed that <laughs> <laughs> I'm too innocent for punk oh no <laughs> don't worry this is glam rock they're very catty about it they, they code it Have I killed the vibe by mentioning low jumps? Nah, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on this one? Yeah. I'm cool to move on to Brian Eno. All right. So, yeah, Brian Eno. Um, I'll be honest, this song just showed up on, I think, a list on Rate Your Music about proto punk. So, I'm not. I'm not exactly the, some sort of detective, but um, yeah, I thought it was interesting because, I mean, apparently this song came out in 1974, which was like, he had already been releasing his uh, more like experimental like ambient-ish art art rock stuff by that time so it's kind of interesting that he uh, ended up putting out this song um, 
it's not exactly the the punk influence or the punk aesthetic is not not on full display necessarily, but there's definitely the this is kind of a another one where there's more of a glam thing going on. Um which you know definitely some Ramones sound kind of um and uh yeah <laughs> what did you guys think I think Eno was kind of like it kind of parallels the Velvet Underground in a way for me and that Eno also goes on to be a pretty big music producer. More in the, like, he produces for Bowie, I believe, um, yeah. and a lot of other glam rock people. He ends up producing as well for some people in 80s New Wave. Like, he worked with the Talking Heads. He worked with Devo. Um, his sound was so unique that on some albums he simply credited as Eno. Uh, Genesis at one point credited him with Enosification of their album. Uh, the thing, the single piece of music he might be most well known for is one that I'm not sure anybody knows he wrote though, which is really funny. He got asked to write the Windows 95 startup sound. Oh yeah! <laughs> not the XP one that we know a little bit better being of the younger generations, but the original Windows 95 one is Brian Eno. Ironically enough, he wrote it on a Mac. <laughs> no brand loyalty. <laughs> he said in an interview that he hated PCs and he's never used one. <laughs> Typical artist. Artistic type. At least Don't he was doing it while Macs were still this. good. I know nothing about what's actually good, but I will say Macs were definitely probably better in the 90s than. Wow, I I just looked up the Windows 95 sound. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Which I mean, yeah. we we had a computer with Windows 90 on it, so <laughs> I'm not like I'm not that young, but I guess we. Didn't. I I remember that indescribably teal desktop background. My yeah. first computer was beige. Darn it! Oh, yeah, I remember the beige computers. They were so good, boxy. Yeah, the song itself, weirdly enough, the song it reminded me most of is a prog rock song, which I know is like antithetical to punk. I think it's just because they both inexplicably feature yodeling. Yeah. That kind of threw me. That and also the part where he decides to kick on all the guitar effects at once in one of the post chorus bits. It just starts yeah. to sound really wonky. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, you know, the usual uh, glam rock guitar sound definitely sticks around for a lot of punk, you know, it's just a very driving song, and it, a lot of it, I think, translates better into later genres, like, especially New Wave, you know, the entire thing is this very silly, goofy back about how French girls are bored of the local guys, and so some Finnish dudes with wacky gimmicks show up, and they just, you know, take away all the girls, which it's good to know for my hierarchy of which foreign guys are cool and which ones aren't. There's a big old list somewhere. 
I can't order. I personally think this is Scandinavian metal band propaganda. Well, Eno's British, right? So he's he should be neutral to the. Well, no, he would hate the. I mean, French, but. <laughs> I was gonna say, if Eno's British, he's doing this solely to diss the French. <laughs> I think just the absurdity of it translates well into later form, like offshoots of punk, more than it does like punk itself. But it's so in that way, it's like a skips a generation gene. Maddie, you're the new wave expert. Do you think this is new wave-ish, kind of? I could see it becoming new wave. I'm not sure. I would classify this as solidly glam. Granted, mm -hmm. Eno's page presentation is influencing me in that a lot. New wave, I think it is weird, but it's not weird in a new wavy way, is how I would phrase it. Yeah, I'm definitely mostly looking at those two bits with the guitar and the yodeling but not, and also just the silliness overall not like a sound thing yeah I can see where like a lot of the sound that would become new wave comes from especially knowing that Eno becomes a producer for all of that and also is involved with like later glam acts and, and concurrent glam acts but I wouldn't say this is new wave necessarily I think one of the interesting things, we see it with uh, with Eno, and I think we see it a little bit with Fallen Star, which we'll talk about in a bit, is that they are proto-punk, but because of that glam side, there's more of an escapist element to them. <laughs> more with Fallen Stars than with this one, but I find that interesting, because I think that escapism kind of sets it apart from punk proper. At least with those two specific examples. Because, yeah, I think they're still, like, like a, for instance, to go back to the, our father, David Bowie, uh, when he did, like, a, you know, during the Ziggy Stardust era where he was super glam, he still had, like, five years and several other songs that are, you know, using the sci-fi to still make a very here and now point about, you know, like, the world changing and, you know, idle things, though. Sometimes they can use the escapism to make a point, but yeah, not not too much here. This is just, oh, aren't the Europeans wacky? That's fine, that's fine. Hey, not everything has to be deep. Deep? Addie Smith. So, uh, unless people want have other things they want to say real quick. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Keep going. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so, Gloria in Excelsis Deo by Patti Smith. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, the CBGB is one of the big clubs in the early days of punk, and Patti Smith was a regular there, and so she's pretty influential as far as with, you know, her presentation as, like, this sort of individualist, spiritual, beatnik type. Uh, let me double-check, because this is I know it's a cover, but I always forget who it's. It's by Van, it was Van Morrison. Morrison. Oh, it's by Van Morrison. Okay, cool. But yeah, and this is basically, you know, her doing her thing. Uh, what'd y'all think of it? 
I like this one. Um, I learned while looking up some history on Patti Smith that uh, the opening line, um, Jesus died for somebody's sin, but not mine, is actually taken from one of her poems because she was a poet and a playwright as well as a songwriter. She was actually personal friends with Allen Ginsberg. Oh, that's cool. Um, and often Patti Smith has been called a uh, punk poet laureate. Uh, Horses, the album that Gloria is from, is actually considered like one of the first sort of art punk albums. And also, Patti has like a personal pedigree here, as she went on to marry one of MC5's guitarists, and their son went on to marry Meg White of the White Stripes in 2009. Oh, nice little rock and roll family. <laughs> yeah, her lyrics are also... Um, a lot of her early poetry and lyrics were inspired by French poet Arthur Rimbaud, which led to her actually getting like a commendation from France for her contributions to musical culture. On home. Um, I really liked this one. Um, I think the fact that her voice is kind of untrained, but very energetic works really in her favor here. Um, there's a lot of um, rebellious triumph in this song that I really, really like. This is also like her debut album, and this is the first song on the album. So talk about a strong opener. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot. I had this in my notes, too. She was nearly the lead singer for Blue Oyster Cult. Oh. <laughs> Also, she did the first version of Because the Night with uh, Bruce Springsteen, which later got covered yeah. by 10,000 Maniacs. All the fun yeah, facts. one of her more famous songs, actually. But I, I really liked this one. I think the production and the instrumental work was really, really good. I think her voice is very unique. She just, she took this song and made it her own. Like, Uh, I know it's not her song, it's a Van Morrison song, but her version feels like the definitive one. Yeah, I think, uh, and apparently it was a pretty popular song with, uh, with, like, garage rock bands. I, there's, there's one version of it that I've, I can't, is it, did the Kinks do this song, or? I, I don't know. Doors covered it. Yeah. I think the kinks yeah the kinks did it i think that's like that's a big one that i've oh wait what i don't hmm? know but yeah anyway yeah she she definitely changes it does her own thing with it and uh and there's like the yeah, multiple it's... movements oh. kind of where yeah the starting and then very slow and she's kind of slowly ramping it up and then you get the driving drum beat and the um, group vocals at the end all singing G-L-O-R-I-A and stuff um, yeah it's a very anthemic sort of song kind of I don't know it kind of doesn't really fit too well with in some like in some senses it's kind of, it's like almost where, it's almost like 
coming out of what punk actually is and then going off in a different direction towards like art rock and uh i don't know new wave-ish post-punk type stuff but yeah i don't know (laughs) it's a good song i did find that like she was credited with kind of introducing the idea of what would become art punk yeah and as a result you can trace a lot of her influence to punk becoming more more streamlined more unrestrained and more simple yeah for sure i think it works i think it works really well i think i like the sectional feel of it i think it's a very well constructed song Whether or not that goes against the punk ethos is up for debate. (laughs) I I personally view it less as sections and more as like a gradual ramping up, like you know, starting like a like a Russian folk song. You know, it'll like start slow (laughs) and then speed it up, and maybe it'll slow down a little bit. Yeah, I think a lot of it, as far as is very much sold by her attitude. You know, she's got that world weary, individualist kind of spiritual vibe as she's like, you know. Weaving in, like, you know, this epic encounter with just, you know, I'm a free spirit, man. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they won't be butt up, man. This, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's I mean, nice because it's just. It was so... a William Blake fan. I, I like it mostly on those grounds. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's strong. I I see what you're saying about it not necessarily being punk directly. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's a lot to count, but also I am just really biased. I like this one. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I think, I mean, it kind of points to how, like, it depends on how you interpret things. Like, with, with like, the Ramones, say, they're, you know, they're, they're super minimal and uh, stripped back. You wouldn't exactly call them poetic in their lyrics. But, like, if you interpret that, I don't know, like, I don't know if they were fans of Patti Smith or not, but, like, if you just interpret them, place them in that sort of lineage, you can kind of, you can almost um, see how there's a lot more depth to what they're doing be, uh, just because of the intention behind it. I don't know if that's kind of, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, Yeah. Maybe we should move on to the next song now. Yeah. Betty, what can you tell us about them spiders from Mars? Uh, so, the spiders from Mars were actually David Bowie's backing band. Uh, it's actually where they get their name, because uh, from the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Um, their membership has a color-coded flowchart on Wikipedia to trace who was in the band when, so I'm not going to go into it. Um, The song is definitely much more in that glam rock vein 
but you can hear there's a few lyrics that feel a little bit protest slash punk adjacent and some of the guitar techniques I think are things that you later see in punk as well um Fallen Star is one of the songs from their only album before they officially disbanded as their own band um I picked them partially because glam rock is considered part of like the proto-punk umbrella if you will but Bowie almost feels like a genre and an episode unto himself so I want to go with something a little bit more obscure and I thought well why not use his backing band who did their own album <laughs> hey we did do an episode on Bowie you remember that one Ricky yeah Yeah, Black Star. It's a great album. Yeah. But this one, I, I can see some punk in it. Uh, like, all the lyrics are about you know like, well, it's topsy turvy. The old are taking advantage of the young. Let's go revolt. But I don't know. It's still. It felt too slick to me. It felt more like. It honestly felt like a Boston song. And it just like, other than the part on the bridge where they start. Doing the overlapping vocals, it, I, I wasn't too You know, fair. Glam... So this is going to be a more broad-scale question. Do we think... And I'm seriously asking this because I'm not sure. Do we think glam is more in proto-punk for being countercultural than specifically for its sound? Or is this just a... Is this something that is peculiar to Spiders from Mars? Uh, you can go first, Ricky. Uh, I honestly, I'd be hard pressed to really dis <laughs> to, to describe what glam music is. I've always thought of it as more of a visual aesthetic, but um, so, but that's just my ignorance. So I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you have more to say on that. I think I think there's both. It is definitely very countercultural because again, it's a scene that's mostly populated by gay men and drag queen and drag queens in the early '70s. So that's going to be very there. And you know, you, there's a silly side, but there's also a more serious side to glam rock that's out there underneath all the feather bows and glitter. But there is also a musical component because a lot of the ones that are identified like a I mentioned Swede and Slade, some of David Bowie stuff, uh, New York Dolls, and the other one. Uh, who else was it? T Rex. You know, it's it's a very there is still a unified sound of you know this pumped up, stripped down sort of fifties throwback with a lot of key piano jangling around and you know, big power chord guitars that are you know a little bit shaggier honestly than what you get here. I think. Like this is this is closer to like I mentioned Boston. Also I could see like Sticks or Kansas on their more normal days putting out something like that. Yeah, so like seventies AOR kinda, right? They, like adult oriented or album oriented? Uh album oriented. <laughs> well, I don't know. Oh. I don't I didn't know it referred to both things. Apparently, I, I just, just found that out recently. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. I feel like it's a bit froggier. This one right, particularly. Right. Yeah. Just like his singing style and the approach to the lyrics. That's that's a personal thing. Again, I do like the overlappy vocals, and I could see that showing up in your things. All right. Should we move on to the last final song? Yeah, sure. <laughs> got anything? That's many. I'm I'm sorry. It's like <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Take us. Move us on from this, Ricky. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry so. Causing the awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just edit it. <laughs> so I, our last song is "Politicians in My Eyes" by Death. And no, it's not Death, the famous death metal band. It's Death, the <laughs> famous proto-punk band. Um, so yeah, I remember hearing about this band pro probably just, I don't know, a few years ago. I mean, yeah, and I thought, I mean, they have an interesting story because they're, they're an all-black band from Detroit who formed in 1971, and uh, it looks like uh, they did put out this song as a single, um, or it was released in 1976. Um, and then nothing else really, they didn't really put out anything else until their album For the Whole World to See was released in 2009. Um, so they're kind of a hidden gem, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting, um, how that happened. It looks like, I mean, uh, somehow, um, <laughs> uh, MP3s of their singles, uh, were kind of circling around. Well, because and those singles were released, but in just very limited editions, and then somehow MP3s of those of those singles uh, were found by, um, I guess, I don't know. The Wikipedia article is kind of kind of sketchy, but um, I guess eventually they came. They uh, found their way to someone at at a record label, Drag City Records. Um, and then, uh, so he contacted, uh, the members of the band, the Hackneys, they're two brothers and one, one other guy. And, uh, I guess they had an original master tape of their first album. So, or, I mean, of seven of their songs. So it was released in, yeah, 2009. Um. But yeah, musically, this is, to me, maybe like my favorite song of all of these. Um, it's definitely a bit, there's some, uh, I don't know, like almost prog rock, almost early metal <laughs> type stuff. Uh, and some, it, a lot more technical playing, uh, you know, these fast bass lines and 
almost kind of jazzy um, drumming at times. But I mean, there's also this aggression that, um, and I mean, the heavily distorted guitars and um, kind of some uh, more simple riffing that you can kind of, I, I could see how uh, how, how uh, you would call it proto-punk. Um, but yeah. It doesn't get more punk than we ran 500 copies of our first and only single and then existed as an urban legend for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really... Like, a lot of punk songs are at a boil. This one is, like, teething. It doesn't really explode right away, which I think is part of what makes it so effective. Also, there's this one great bit with the mixing in the second half where they use the whammy bar and kind of like stereo and you hear it kind of go wow from one headphone <laughs> to the other. Yes. That was cool. I liked that. Yeah, this song is just... This is a very different approach to the... Uh, I'll be cliche and call it the rage against the machine because instead of this is a lot more the approach is a lot more controlled like this isn't this isn't it doesn't sound like somebody yelling off the cuff this this sounds like what happens when you make somebody so mad they circle around to being calm yeah yeah there's definitely a lot of like Again, like bitterness again, like, you know, from the the singer seems to be hearing the verses, they're, you know, doing that very do um with the very fast riff and the occasional guitar chop and they're just, you know, spitting out these words about how politicians are worthless, but then in the chorus it gets you know, it slows down with the snare drum tattoo and then suddenly they're just wailing out their pain about how like ultimately we're dying out here and politicians don't care. So like yeah. it's just the lyrics being syncopated works really well too for that chorus section. Yeah. It gets dark. Appropriately for a band named Death. <laughs> yeah, I one of the top comments on the uh the YouTube link you sent us was um somebody saying I listened to this song all through 2020 and it's like, yeah, I can see why you would. <laughs> yeah. Going sort of back to the comments about it being sort of proggy and meta metallic, you definitely see that in a way because yeah, it is like a longer song with you know very distinct sections as opposed to just fashion thrash. But it's it is amazing how even though it's a longer song, it's still very minimal. You know, basically it's just got four parts: the intro part with it, and then it's got the first part, and then the slowdown. And then the one chorus melody that they just repeat for the last two minutes with increasing distortion. It's just like, out of just those four pieces, they're able to make full six minutes that's, you know, engaging pretty much throughout. Or at least until the last yeah. minute or so. I'm, I'm going to be real. It's not, it doesn't hold up for a full six minutes. But for five minutes out of only four parts, take it. <laughs> yeah.
It's song. I can't imagine yeah. like what like how <laughs> what it must have been like to have so much recognition after like 40 years or 30. <laughs> but yeah it's, yeah, it's a cool story. They did get recognized. That is how it is with a lot of the punk bands. Like, like you had mentioned with the Velvet Underground, like they weren't widely recognized either, and they like fell apart pretty quick because they were selling so poorly. But there's the quote of only a thousand people bought the Velvet Underground record the first time, but each one of them started a band. That's how it's been. Everyone was like, "Yeah, I am tired of these politicians in my eyes." And I do want to kick out the jams. <laughs> yeah, the Sonics as well. I do want to well. drink Strict 9. <laughs> no! <laughs> Little Timmy, no! <laughs> Again, I'm telling you, the Sonics predicted Tide Pods. <laughs> Could be. Any closing thoughts on Death or all, all the songs, honestly? Because... I think what we've commented on about protopunk being really difficult to define is definitely evident in how many different genres we drifted through for this. And also how many times Ricky was like, are you guys sure? And also the one time I was like, are you guys sure? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I, I chose the topic, so I feel, I feel like I have... Um, have a right to question the legitimacy of the topic. <laughs> Without you, oh, so I, don't, I don't mean it as a criticism of anyone else. But... Criticize us. Criticize <laughs> me. Criticize me. Criticize. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun episode. Yeah, it's interesting to just listen to some. I don't know. I think. Some of these styles are a bit more neglected or not like, I don't know. I still haven't really listened to much like of the garage stuff and glam stuff from like the 60s. It's just a bit, uh, I, yeah. Kind I of never really checked out the period. And also it helps, oh, I said I had never really checked out the Sonics either, but I'm definitely going to now because that was a jamming song. Yeah. The 60s? It's so wild to me that the Sonics are the 60s. They do not sound like the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> they sound, I don't know, to me they sound very 60s, but the a specific subset that was, you know, real edgy. They are definitely not, you know, peace and love, man. They are... Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, thank you all for listening to the our protopunk album. The artists that we listened to were Dick Dale, uh, Los Saicos. Uh, let me pull up this because I'm gonna forget. The Sonics, Pleasure Seekers, The Velvet Underground, The Rolling Stones, MC5, Johnny Cash, Zonoe Keisatsu. Uh, New York Dolls, Brian Eno, Patti Smith, Spiders from Mars, and Death. I'm Caleb Clark. Ricky Flowers. Thanks for tuning in to the Billy Shears.